This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Welcome to our 150th episode of Total Saints Podcast. To mark the occasion, it felt only right to try and secure a truly special guest, a saint through and through. If you look back at our 135-year history, one man stands above all others as our most successful manager. He first joined the club in 1973, gave us our greatest day in 1976, and remains a pivotal part of it as a club ambassador in 2021. It is, of course... Mr. Laurie McMenemy. Laurie, firstly, thank you so much for joining Glenn and I for a chat. How are you keeping? Well, all right, but I'm not 150 year old, you know. <laughs> and, um, uh, but no, it's uh, it's a pleasure because uh, I know that you're passionate supporters, and uh, every club needs them, especially um, if you're not doing too well. Not, but we are in the top flight, and uh, I'm sure that uh, you know you want us to get on winning. And we've got a cup tie coming up, and let's think about that one. Yeah, indeed. So let's go back to the, the summer of 1973 then, Laurie. Um, you joined Saints from Grimsby Town, where you were manager after Ted Bates had made contact with you about replacing him. Of course, Ted had, um, by that stage, been in the hot seat for 18 years himself. What do you remember of that time, Laurie? Because um, eventually accepting the managerial role on the South Coast wasn't necessarily the first time you'd interviewed at the Dal. Is that right? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. It was um, an occasion when... There was about six people interviewed all together, I think, and uh, um, I found out afterwards when I bumped into them with games, etc. And that was, I think, when John Mortimer, mm. bless him, was appointed. And uh, I was possibly at Doncaster at the time, or in between Doncaster and Grimsby. Um, I got the call. I bumped into Ted at the place called Lillishall yeah. in the summer. Football managers and coaches um, and youngsters like myself at the time used to meet up 
for a week uh, at the little show that was a like a sports centre yep. up in the Midlands, and um, the FA took it on at different times in the summer. Uh, sometimes for people who were taking their badges. In those days, you had to have a preliminary coaching badge and then a full badge. Yeah. And um, part of the full badge was residential little show. And then, of course, the one I'm on about, there was a week where uh, you got to bump into big names, managers. And, uh, you know, I remember one week I was there, after a day or two, there was a bit of a buzz went round, and we all looked outside, and there was a, um, a couple of cars, big cars rolled up, and four or five fellas got out of the cars, all dressed in red. Yeah. And it was Liverpool staff. <laughs> And it was Shankly, Paisley, Moran, Roy Evans, all of them. And there was a gas went up, you know, because uh, they were the biggest names around at the time. And I think they sort of wandered around. They watched the first couple of sessions. And then uh, they got in the car and cleared off. <laughs> they didn't rate they didn't it. They weren't FA coaching types, but at least they showed their faces. But, uh, but um, people like me at that age group, were delighted at meal times, you mixed and mingled, and that's when um, I really got to know Ted. He was a lovely man, Ted, mm-hmm. bless him, and uh, him and I got on ever so well. And then I don't think anything was mentioned at the time, but I think what happened after a while, he decided it was time for him to hang his boots up, and uh, I got a mention. Um, I also found out later on that Don Reavy, bless him, he'd been one of the most successful managers in football anyway uh, at, at Leeds United, and he mentioned me to Ted, um, as well as a fellow called Alan Brown, yep. who was um, my manager at Sheffield Wednesday. He'd been at Sunderland, and when I was managing Bishop Auckland, he gave me a pre-season game and he more or less sent the Blumen first team to Bishop Auburn. It was wonderful. And he'd obviously kept his eye on me. And uh, when he went to Sheffield Wednesday, because uh, I was part-time at Bishop Auburn, yeah. he, he contacted me. In fact, he just landed in my house up in the northeast. And um, i never forget, he turned up at the door. I knew he was coming because he was on his way to a game at Newcastle. And um, I put the kettle on and sat down, and he said um, to me, okay, can you just leave the room now, go upstairs, I'd like to talk to your wife. I thought, I'm an egg, that's a bit strange. <laughs> and uh, when I went out of the room, he said, Anne, um, I'm going to offer your husband a job down in Sheffield, but it's no good if you don't want to move. And she said, right, we'll be with you straight away. <laughs> and um, he called me back in and offered me a coach's job and that's how it all started full time. Yeah. And you obviously mentioned there about uh, growing up in the North East Laurie and then, yeah, the number of sort of northern-based clubs that you worked with, Bishop Auckland, Sheffield Wednesday, Doncaster Rovers and Grimsby Town. How difficult was it for you and the family to eventually decide on making the move so far south? Well, before we came to Southampton, of course, you've got to remember we were at uh, Sheffield Wednesday. Mm. So that was halfway down, right, really. <laughs> once, we'd, once we'd moved out of the North East, uh, and got used to it. I mean, I, I was more used to it. I had done national service, you know. I mean, yeah. 
I, I was in London and in Germany, so it wasn't the first time I'd been away. But um, to move down south was a, a massive thing, especially for the, the the kids that we had, you know, new schools and everything. But um, no, it, it's a big, big thing, and uh, being in football as well, you've got to keep winning to be happier. But um, I think as well, it depends on the time of the year. If it was the end of the season, we had a bit of a close season when we could spend more time getting the house and that sorted out yep. than you would if you were in an ordinary day-to-day job. It didn't take too long to settle. Saints have finished 13th in the first division the season before you took over. But as soon as you arrived, from the point that Ted introduced you to the team, it's Ted Bates, of course, you had a few concerns about the players, let's call it laid-back attitude. Is that correct? Well, I mean, Ted had been here so long, and uh, he staffed uh, Bill Erdin, George Horswell, bless him, and um, I think they were all one big family, and, um, you know, I walked in, they probably didn't know who the devil I was anyway. I, I could sense that there was a, that atmosphere in the dressing room. Uh, well, let's, let's see who he is, let's test him out. You know, and uh, I had to overcome that. But uh, having had experience as well at other clubs, um, I was quite uh, happy to do it. But like I said earlier, you know, it's all about winning games. And um, But the, the, the training is much more important, obviously, when you're new to each other. That's when you uh, work out who your players are. Bearing in mind that in those days, you didn't have such a, a big a squad as they do now where the new manager coming into a club now at premiership level is coming into about, what, 30, 40 bodies mm. probably. Um, as I said earlier, I think in those days the first team squad was basically 13 or 14 and then others were reserves, um, youngsters, and you had a youth team as well. The, the training ground was a bit where you really got to know who was who and you would have your trainers there as I did, we called them trainers in them days, uh, who had been with them a long, long time. You do something, um, then you, you, they'd be warming up, you know, just running round, running round, and um, one of the other staff would keep an eye on that, and I would be with one of the senior staff and saying, that one there, who's he again? You know, what's he like? And you find out things like that, what they like off the field, and then they would tell you who did what on the field, you know. And uh, eventually, you got the training games, and um, you, you start to realise yourself who other ones did look better than others. Things went well in the early part of the 1973-1974 season. Saints were fifth at Christmas. We had the likes of Eric Martin, Jim Steele, Hugh Fisher, Mike Channon, Bobby Stokes, and Terry Payne in the squad. Yeah. We'll come on to Terry's situation in a moment, Laurie. But despite having to win them over after Ted had been manager for so long, it must have felt like you were making sort of positive progress during those early months. Well, because Ted had been here so long, and the directors were all new worldly gentlemen, wonderful, wonderful people, and they'd over the years, they'd had a few assistant managers come in, um, obviously with a view to possibly taking over, and none of them really did it. They never got into that situation. Um, and I think they looked on me as another one possibly in that category even though I'd already managed and won 
I mean, I'd not only won titles at Grimsby and Doncaster, but I'd won them at Gateshead and Bishop Auckland as well. Yeah. You know? and so I had a winning sort of record, winning mentality. But they appointed me as team manager designate. And I, I, I smile now even when I remember. <laughs> Why the hell I, I let them do that, I don't know. But uh, I just got on with it. But what that gave the impression, I didn't realise at the time, it gave the impression that I was like an assistant to Ted. Um, and Ted only came to the ground in the afternoon when he wanted to jog around the track. <laughs> and I would do it with him, you know. He never had anything to do with picking the team or, or whatever. But he was a very, very nice man, a very good, experienced fella. And him and I got on tremendously well. And, of course, those are the days when you went out looking at other games during the week. You didn't have loads of scouts and everything as they do nowadays. Uh, and particularly when there was games up in London area, I would say, Ted, do you fancy coming up to Chelsea or Tottenham or Arsenal or whatever? And he loved it. He loved mm. being part of it. Because remember, he'd been involved well over 30 years, hadn't he, at the club? Yeah, yeah. And I would pick him up at Chilworth, where he lived, and already enjoy Because, see, I didn't know where the clubs were. I didn't. <laughs> you know, a good partnership in that respect. Um, two tickets. And in those days, he always got in the director's box. And um, that's what I had to work out the area the, where the other clubs were uh, because we were looking at them, A, because you might be playing against them soon, yep. but also um, looking at players who may become available if you were looking for one. So we did all of that together. And I could ask Ted about individuals in the squad I'd inherited. Uh, Ted wasn't a talkative type of man. He wouldn't say too much but I would pin him down on and say hey I've noticed in training that one there he doesn't sort of look as quick as I thought he might be and then Ted would have to tell me his history mm-hmm. uh, and then eventually eventually I was getting to know them and I could tell I mean the strong ones in the dressing room were the ones you mentioned the big names the international yeah. um, and of course the young players idolised them and they would listen to them before they would listen to anybody else, uh, particularly a new manager who probably hadn't signed them in the first place. So yeah. I had to win off the field before they'd start winning on the field. And um, you mentioned Terry briefly there. Terry obviously was a legend, still is. Uh, he was the longest serving there. He was captain. Ted had signed him as a youngster. And, you know, they were like brothers, really. Mm. But... I couldn't work it out, but eventually it hit me. I didn't think Terry tried to help me much, put it that way, as, a, as an experienced captain normally would. And um, I think eventually it hit me. It could well be that Terry, because of his long experience at the club, and what he'd done, such a good job, very popular with everybody, I think he possibly thought he might have got the job. Yeah. He'd never been into coaching, obviously. And... Um, so anybody coming in, whether it was me or anybody else, maybe he's got the job that he would have wanted. So I can understand it, looking back. I mean, since then, I mean, Terry's been in South Africa, hasn't he, for a yeah. long, long time. And he does television work and that. Anyway, he came a couple of years ago to end the season, player of the year, and I'd been invited to that. 
um, and we had a good little chat together. And he was good as gold, and he then told me he was coming up to an age, and he was thinking about packing in the TV, etc. So I, th- I think he probably knew, because I, I think I've said it in a book of mine, I think, about it. He knew that I had a, a thing with him, but he didn't have a go at me about it. He, I think he realised and he accepted it with the experience that he'd had since leaving the club. Because he went to other clubs, didn't he? He went to yeah. uh, Hereford. Yeah. And he probably then realised when he became a manager, it wasn't as easy as he thought. And I think he, he sympathised with me then. And, I mean, he had to put his hands up. Even though we got relegated first season, there was quite a bit happened after that where he had to say, well, well done, uh, which he did. Funnily enough, the, the only time I saw Terry Payne play at the Dell was for Hereford. <laughs> See, he, oh, he played 700 odd games for Saints and I never saw him play. I saw him play one for Hereford. But uh, uh, <laughs> um, Just touching on another one of your signings, during that season where we, we did, as you say, got relegated, you, you also managed to sign England international Peter Osgood from Chelsea for about 275,000, which was a record for Saints at the time. As will be proven, Ozzy went on to make over 100 appearances, um, and it was a really significant signing for the club and yourself. One that you've previously mentioned showed Saints were prepared to back you and established yeah. the policy of getting slightly past it players in. How pleased were you to get a player of his quality in at the time? Well, I mean, when you're saying towards the end of the career, that's the only way I could get them because the height of his career, Peter Osgood, he would never have got him for that sort of money. Could have doubled it at least, and. Um, because over the years I've developed the saying old heads and young legs. He was the first old head probably that I signed. But what had happened, um, Dave Sexton was um, the manager of Chelsea and I knew Dave through meeting up with him on uh, get-togethers of coaches and managers at Lillish Hall and places like that. And we got on very, very well. He was a quiet sort of man, Dave. Very um, popular with uh, the crowd and anybody that knew him but him and I'd heard a little rumour I don't know where I got it from that him and, and Peter Osgood weren't getting on Dave was one of those that nice as nightmares good as gold but if you cross him wallop <laughs> and, uh, that's what happened and I thought hang on that won't work out now that relationship because whatever Ozzy had done had upset Dave <clears throat> and he let him know so I rang Dave at the right time. Normally, he would have said, uh, bye-bye, you've got no chance. But I got him at the right time, and uh, it helped them all both, really. They needed to get out of each other's way. And it was a good one for Ozzy, because um, he never moved house, I don't think. And he, he only lived up um, between Hampshire and Surrey type of thing, you know. And uh, yeah. he was pleased to come. And, of course, him walking in the dressing room, fantastic. People like Mick Channing already knew him, you know, the, the oldies. But the youngins, uh, he, was a, he was a legend to them. And Saints, as you mentioned, Laurie, were sadly relegated at Goodison Park that final day of that season, despite winning. Birmingham City also won and finished one point ahead of us. So I remember you telling the story previously about the fact that uh, the scoreboard at Goodison Park had the score around the wrong way. So for a long time, you thought Birmingham were losing. But it was the, the first time three clubs had gone down from the first division and Saints unfortunately finished in that third spot. You mentioned, obviously, it was yeah. quite a, a painful blow for everyone, no less yourself. But you also sort of mentioned that, I think, previously that relegation had caused you a lot of personal stress and angst, which is totally understandable. And you may be expected to be removed from your position as manager. But 
that didn't happen. Instead, as you were running some laps one day, I think it was, you said, around uh, the, the pitch to keep yourself fit and your mind active, you noticed the chairman, George Reader, and director Sir George Merrick standing in the corner of the field. And I think you thought to yourself, this is probably going to be it, but that didn't turn out to be the case, obviously. George Reader, I think, just said, manager, get on with it and get rid of that pain in your side. Is that right? I was running around behind the far goal. I turned at the corner flag and I saw the pair of them and I thought, oh, yeah, this is it. Uh, I don't know how long it was after the end of the season, but I was the only one at the club. Everybody looked beyond a bit and season over. Uh, and I was jogging down to them and I got to them and um, I looked at them both. Manager, Sir George, how are you? And George Reader, the manager, looked at me and said, manager, sort it out. <laughs> and he turned around and he went back to the steps to go up. And Sir George, with a smile on his face, uh, he winked at me. And um, I thought, ah, oh, I'm all right, you know. Uh, and that was then acknowledging that we'd gone down, but given the job to me to get them back up again. How much of a watershed moment do you think that was, Laurie, for, for you as well? Because I guess, you know, we know what modern football's like. Bearing in mind everything that was going to happen over the next few years, that meeting with them must have been almost, you know, so important. Well, it was terrific because I automatically thought, when are they going to tell me I'm out, you know, and... Mm. Uh, because of the history, the club had never been relegated, etc., etc., and that was the the thing in them days. You know, even now more, I suppose, if you get relegated, the manager is expected to go, the supporters expect him to be out. But the the fact that the board knew as well, looking back at board meetings that we used to have regular board meetings every week, it was their chance seeing each other and having a cup of tea and that together, and sometimes a bit stronger at the end of the meeting, but. Uh, <laughs> They knew, I think, better than anybody because the board had been together for a long, long time and I think they knew that the dressing room had to be sorted out. Mm. Uh, that I'd been in there long enough to get to know who was who and they were letting me know they were behind me. Um, as we pointed out, if it had been the season before, we wouldn't have gone down to the third bottom. Mm. It was a new thing and I think the directors took that into consideration as well. You know, I'd done enough to keep the club in normally, but not that yet. And they, like the chairman said, get on with it. Mm. And I did. And um, it gave me a terrific lift, fresh start, able to keep the, any staff that I wanted. Um, I was I was allowed to get on and take the club forward in the way I'd been able to at other clubs. Whilst we didn't win the league like I did at other clubs, we we didn't get too far off, did we? Mm. You talk about retaining certain staff, but a key was trying to retain the services of two of your key players, Mick Channon and Peter Osgood. So the following spring, Jim McCalliog joined, who would eventually set up our most famous goal, of course. End of the season, Saints finished 13th. We didn't go up as maybe you would have wanted to, but do you think that season in the second division ultimately allowed you to embed your style on the team and set the platform for what would happen over the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean... I. The trouble with football is that although you, you did have a good uh, end-of-season break, you could have done with more time, uh, with more training games, etc., to sort out who was who. And Because when you get relegated, it's a different attitude that you need from players the following year. It's, yeah. a, it's a fighting attitude. It's a battling attitude. It's not always the nicest football. Who's bothered about how nice it is? As long as you get it, what was it in those days? Two points, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I mean, how many teams was there in the league? You had to change your attitude and 
It had to be a win-win-win attitude, especially away from home, because that was another thing which I realised very quickly. When we were playing away games at clubs, for instance, a club that had just come up from the third division, and their crowd are going to look at a team with Peter Osgood and Mick Shannon, yeah. and they'd never have seen internationals normally uh, at their level. And that lifted their team. And that's why nowadays I keep saying to people, that's why so many games are won by the away team at the minute, because there's no crowd in. Mm. Crowd lifting the home team. Well, in those days when we went, if you look back, probably, I've never thought of this before, but probably they nearly all had their best crowd of the season when they played us. Yeah. And let's move on to 1975-76 then, Laurie, a season that will forever be etched into the memory of Saints fans, of course. Um, Despite winning 21 of our 42 league games in the second division, we couldn't quite secure promotion, finishing sixth this time with 49 points, um, just four points off of going up. But instead, as we uh, will come to find out in the next few minutes, it was a season that was all about the FA Cup. When you look back through it, as I did when I was sort of researching this, the, the whole cup run was actually full of unique and fateful moments and situations, wasn't it? Because even in the very first round, the third round for Saints, it was a last-minute Huey Fisher equaliser that managed to get the replay against Aston Villa. Well, that's right. Um, I mean, no cup run is easy. Uh, when you think about it, that point you've made there was valid because it was a last-minute free kick and it go by somebody... With due respect to Hugh, he was a lovely man and a good player. He was not a goal scorer, was he? No. And uh, <laughs> the free kick, as I remember it, was a big wall the opposition put up. And uh, I think it was so big, the goalkeeper couldn't see the ball. <laughs> and that's how Hugh scored. It didn't fly in, it bobbled in. <laughs> and he had the mickey taken out of him. But he, he, to this day, he keeps saying, yeah, it's going to be for my goal, you know. <laughs> He's right. <laughs> you yeah. need a bit of luck. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, yeah, I mean, have, having beaten Villa in the replay by two goals to one, then thanks to Jim McCallioch's extra time winner, you'd go on to overcome Blackpool 3-1 at the Dal in round four. There was nothing particularly eventful about that game, but the fifth round then saw you travel up to West Bromwich Albion, Laurie, and... Uh, that game was significant because on the eve of the match, a number of your players fell ill in, uh, let's call it, mysterious circumstances, shall we? Well, West Bromwich Albion was a, a sort of game in those days. You could have gone up on the morning of the game, type mm. of thing, you know, the Midlands, and uh, that's what teams did in those days. But for some reason, probably because it was the Cup, the board allowed me to go the night before. Mm. And we booked in a hotel which wasn't too far from the ground, and uh, they were used to getting football teams in there. And whenever you travelled, you checked in, you went to the room, took our bags in, told to come straight down, early sort of meal, and, uh, I mean, not a, like a Christmas dinner type of thing. And, um, after went back to the rooms, get a good night's sleep, um, and then the trainer would go around the next morning, knocking them up and checking that, you know, etc. Um, and he came to me and he said, hey, he said, there's the problem. And I can't remember how many there was, but there was uh, some of them who couldn't, they didn't want to get out of bed. They were mm. sick and uh, uh, really, really ill. And I can't remember if we had a medical man with us. Well, we would have. We'd have the physio with us. And, of course, I got him there going around. And um, it was pretty obvious that uh, they weren't 100% fit by any means. And I suppose, really, I should have tried to get the game off. We had no chance. Mm. Cup game, 
crowds already travelling and um, had to try and get them as fit as possible beforehand, not show any illness when we got to the ground. But watching them on the pitch, so I could tell some of them were, you know, trying to be sick even on the plumbing pitch, you know, and uh, um, we scraped through, we hung on, and uh, after the game, I forget if it was more than one player, we had to get a car to get them back to the Dell, not on the bus, to get them back quickly and get medically looked at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we then, I don't know how I found out, but it turned out that somebody in the kitchen was a big, big, big West Brom fan, and uh, to be fair, he should have been reported, but mm. I mean, I couldn't have proved it, no doubt, but when we heard that, uh, I didn't need much of a team talk, I can tell you. <laughs> Because yeah. the players took it out of the opposition. And uh, what was the score? 4-0 on the replay. Mickey Shannon, who was the most ill, probably went on to get a hat-trick. That's right, yeah. Mick, yeah. Well, Mick's one of them. He, he wouldn't let anybody do something like that without getting, the, getting his own back. <laughs> Indeed. And, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, as I mentioned, you managed to win three at the Dow. 4-0 on the replay. That took you on to face Bradford City. I was talking to my dad about this uh, the other day, Laurie, because he was at that game at Bradford City and said he remembers it being quite hostile, the crowd and the opposition, and uh, obviously you remember the story that you've uh, told before about the chairman and the toilets and things like that. But Yeah, the chairman was what was his name? Hagenbottom. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll try and keep the pod clean by not talking about the toilet situation. But I, I suppose the most important part of that day was, of course, the winning goal. And, uh, you know, many Saints fans will remember it, Laurie, because Peter Osgood obviously flicked up a free kick and Jim McAllog sublimely lobbed it over the wall. And I think we can all agree it's probably a goal to win any game. Well, Bradford City on paper was going to be an easy game. And I had to get into the players and no game in the cup is easy, you know. Yeah. Uh, the, the press already more or less had us through with, before the kickoff, etc. And again, because of the big names in the team and the difference in levels, Bradford, uh, weren't doing that well, I don't think, in their own league. But like I said earlier, the FA Cup changes things and it's the biggest day and a big opportunity to make the headlines. Uh, by getting a result that nobody expects. And um, we got to the ground. Uh, I've got to say, even though you might not want me to, the dressing <laughs> room wasn't clean as it would normally be. Um, like all oldie worldly grounds, you had a, a bathroom next door, the next door with showers and toilets and that in. And it wasn't that it hadn't been clean, but actually been dirty. And that's I found out later, the chairman, who was a bit of a character, old Hegenbottom, but I remembered him, you see, from when I was in the lower leagues as well, and we used to play them league games, with Doncaster, Grimsby, etc. And he was a well-known character right through that level of football. But um, he had got all the young players, the apprentices or whatever, uh, to do, go into the dressing rooms and, and the bathrooms, um, and instead of doing what they would have normally done, clean, dirty. And you can put your own mind on how the dirty <laughs> did. But they did all that. Well, you can imagine when we arrived, like an hour before kickoff, you go in and you normally open the door to smell lovely, fresh, clean air. And, and it was quite the opposite. And when you went into the toilet area, it absolutely stunk. And uh, uh, so that was his way of trying to get us um, rattled. And um, But it worked against them, obviously. But it was a very difficult game, and uh, 
we, we were hanging on a little bit, I think, but um, there again, FA Cup opposition, you know, go and get them, you know, expected to win. They played well above the game. And then eventually we got a free kick just outside the penalty area. Um, who stepped up? Two internationals, Peter Oz, Jimmy McCallion, and um, they put a wall up and everything. And the crowd might have been uh, you know, one of the noisiest crowds mm. ever ever played. They were oh, they slaughtered us from the pickup. Yeah. That was the chairman who got them going. He, he told them, I think, yeah. in the newspapers and everything. Really upset them, and they listened to him, and oh, it was a terrible atmosphere. And then the free kick, and I can remember Ozzy standing with his hands on his hips, sideways on to the goal, waiting for the whistle. Jim was only about a yard off him, and whistle went, and everybody's waiting for Ozzy to pass the ball forward a little bit over the side, but he didn't. He worked his foot underneath it, and the whistle went. He flicked it up in the air, stepped back. Jimmy took a yard forward and volleyed it mm. over the wall in the back of the net. Terrific. Um, only a couple of good players in I would have thought about it. It's such a vital result. And, um, you know, the press all around me, uh, all they wanted to talk about was the free kick. And uh, I saw it. I remember shrugging my shoulder saying, yeah, well, you know, we do it all the time. And I'd never <laughs> seen it. Never seen it. We had a, a good laugh on the bus coming home. Um, in fact, I think we got the train to that game. I think we were on the train. But uh, that was a talk all the way home anyway. Three kids. Four in the Bradford wall. Cook making it five because the kick is nearly central. At the six now. McCallion. So simple. A touch of class is what was required, and that's what Southampton produced. As cheeky a free kick as you would like to see, Peter Osgood just knocked the ball up, and Jim McCallion volleyed it over the wall and passed the surprise downs breath. The man who nearly didn't play through injury has put Southampton in front at such an important time. And Saints would then have to wait almost a month for the semi-final against uh, Crystal Palace that would uh, take place at Stamford Bridge, Laurie. Um, Palace were coached by Malcolm Allison and a young Terry Venables, and even though they were in the third division, the second division now, it obviously meant Saints had avoided Manchester United and Derby County, who were both doing well in the top division, so that was a positive. But to try and get away from all the sort of hype and excitement that was building in and around Southampton, you took the players away to Essex for a quiet retreat leading up to that game. Is that right? Well, I did, but um, the, the biggest thing about that was the draw at Man United Derby. And nobody wanted to play either one of them. And we got the draw we wanted, I suppose, really. But uh, on paper, but of course, the two fellas you mentioned, Allison and Venables, they weren't going to make it easy. But um, there was such an interest from the crowd, our supporters, Bearing in mind the club had never won a cup before, obviously, and uh, they were thinking, oh, yeah, this is a chance we can get to Wembley. Um, and the excitement was getting more and more and more. And of course, I was trying, like anything, to put the cup in the background. I wanted promotion yeah. more than anything. Let's put the cup away until it turns up the game. But 
from the minute the draw was made, it, it was a cup, cup, cup all the time. And, and the players as well, I was having to stop them talking about it, you know, and uh, get on with the league games. Because, I mean, how many league games would there be between the draw and the game? Yeah. Two or three, at least. And, uh, you know, you needed those points. But anyway, um, the game itself was coming on, and I said to the board, look, I've got to get them out of the area here. And uh, I think a lot of time you would have gone up to a big hotel up in the London area. But uh, I forget who it was that mentioned this hotel, a pal of mine somewhere. And they had stayed at this place, and he recommended it. Mm. And I went on his recommendation, and it was perfect. It was a smashing hotel, great staff. And they'd had experience with teams there before. They knew exactly how to handle it. And um, they kept the media away. They had a, a green area at the back they could train on. And um, we got on with it. And uh, because we got out of the way and hidden away, he and Terry were getting more and more media attention, which I don't think they minded yep. at the time. But I was happy for them to have it and keep us out of the way quiet. And that's the way it was. And um, the only problem was we had a bit of a longer journey into the Sanford Bridge mm. than you would normally have wanted before the game. Um, our bus got to Sanford Bridge and we could see the Crystal Palace bus. And I told uh, our driver to slow down and let them go past us. When the bus went by, we were looking at each other through the windows, and Malcolm had this big coat with a big collar on, furry collar, and a big, big hat. And uh, I think somebody, probably Mick Channel or whatever, said, look at that so-and-so thing he's got on his head. <laughs> and we all, everybody in the bus started laughing. And there's a palace bus past us that saw everybody laughing. Mm. And they commented on that afterwards. Uh, so that got us more relaxed and in a better attitude way, and we, I knew it was never going to be easy, semi-final, but uh, to be fair, it turned out to be easier than I expected. We won that game 2-0, thanks to two late-ish goals. Firstly, a tremendous long-range strike from Paul Gilchrist, and then an 80th minute David Peach penalty. So Jim McHale takes this way for Southampton. With just over a quarter of an hour to go. Shannon nodding it back for Gilchrist. Osgood. Gilchrist. Hit well. Goal! Well, Gilchrist has made the breakthrough. But it seemed would never come with just over a quarter of an hour to go. A low, rifling drive. Paul Hammond a little bit late going for it, into the back of the net. Southampton 1, Crystal Palace 0. Shannon on the break. Down he goes. And I think it's a penalty, is it? Penalty given. Or not. No, it's not. Well, for a moment, he was running to that penalty spot. The linesman has come quickly onto the field to show that it was just outside. 
No, he's given a penalty. He's given a penalty. So, David Peach will take this penalty. And this really is the moment where he could settle everything now for Southampton. Peach versus Hammond. 2-0! Well, tremendous scenes of jubilation there from Southampton as David Peach, I would have thought, now puts Wembley beyond the dreams of Crystal Palace. A penalty that he hit fairly straight, but he hit with such power into the back of the net. 2-0! What do you remember about the game itself, Laurie? game itself was looking like it was going to be a draw. Um, they obviously, like I've said all along, everybody wants to win, um, even though they might not be doing well in the league or whatever. The cup, and especially when you get to that stage, win this game is under Wembley. I mean, Wembley to lower division clubs like all of us were then was a dream. Uh, so you can imagine they were, you know, up for it. It wasn't a great game, as I remember, but I was heading for a draw. Defences were on top. And then, out of the blue, Paul Gilchrist, lovely, lovely lad, quiet, not the top goal scorer by a long way. And he struck a ball from way out, and he would normally not have had a shot. You know, he'd have have gone over the bar if he tried or whatever. Flew in, and that changed everything, obviously. They chucked everything at us. But then... um, we got a penalty, and I was totally relaxed about it because even though it might upset people about Matt Lattes and whatever, Davy Peach was the top penalty taker in the country. Mm. Yeah. Look at his record. Uh, if you count Gillingham in, where I signed him from, and then at Southampton, he never missed a penalty, did he? I don't think it, I mean, I remember seeing him play quite a lot, you know, in the in the subsequent seasons, and I don't remember him missing ever. And I do oh, remember. You, you look the record up. And, uh, yeah. he never missed. He made a miss. The last one he made a miss, I don't know, but him and Matt, uh, I mean, Matt has got a record at Southampton, probably, but if you add Davies at uh, Gillingham, it doesn't matter where you're playing, it's still a penalty, it's still a penalty. Um, so I was quite happy when we got the penalty. Because also, you see, I've got a thing about left-footed penalty takers. <laughs> Not always the best. But Dave was the best. He's left-footed and uh, totally at ease and calm. But when you think he'd come from, I don't know how long he'd been with me, but he'd come from a lower division club, Little Gillingham, and there he is stepping up to be the man that makes sure we've gone to Wembley. Perfect. Yeah, brilliant. After the semi-final, it was back to the league and there was a, a league trip to Fratton Park, which happened to be the first game I ever went to. We won 1-0 with a last-minute goal from Mick Channon, despite three players being dropped for over-celebrating the semi-final. <laughs> Do you remember much about that incident and that game? Um, I'm trying to remember the players. Ozzy was one. I think Jim McCalliog was one. Yeah. And possibly Jim I, Steele. I think Jim Steele was probably involved, yeah. Jim and Ozzy, um, Jim Steele, Jim McCalliog. Yeah, they were in a drinking competition at any time, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Even though it was only up the road, for some reason I got the directors to agree with me. We were going the night before. I just wanted to settle everybody down, get their mind in the right place, and we're in a little hotel somewhere. 
point I made to the board, and they totally agreed. We got the same number of tickets as Manchester United. Manchester United's crowd was what, 60,000? Yeah. What was the deal then? About pro- 30 and a half, right? So there was no complaints from supporters because they all got their tickets. Mm. And there was enough left. The board had their share and they stood by me and the team. Well, you can imagine the excitement down there. Of course, all the pressure was on Tommy Doherty, a very good friend of yours, and of course, you know, sadly, a bit like John Mortimer, having recently passed away, and Manchester United. Um, Saints were the clear underdogs, as we all remember Mick Shannon pointed out to you when uh, advising you of the pre-game odds on the day. When you and the team got to Wembley and were in the changing room getting ready, Laurie, could you sense then that something special was going to happen, or were there a lot of nerves around? Well, it's not a nerves. I mean, the, the bus journey from the hotel to Wembley... It's quieter than usual. You, know, you normally had a bit of patter, a bit of laughter. Different groups, not just one voice. You know, little gang used to sit. They all had their same seats. You know, the seniors had the priority. They would sit in the back. Um, but they didn't want the manager and the staff to hear what they were on about, probably. But um, and, and the Wembley one was quiet, the trip in. And... Uh, I remember the nearer we got to Wembley, the, the bus could hardly move for the crowd. And uh, it was dawning on you exactly you know, how big this was. Mm. Uh, and that, that road up, you know, the, the, right, the last bit of road up to the stadium itself, even with people, our supporters cheering, banging on the side of the bus, and uh, the, uh, the opposition doing the opposite. And then getting up to there, you know, going in, that was when it was really going on you because the door was at the bottom of a long sort of the tunnel that you walked up mm. to go out under the pitch. The dressing room was at the bottom. Our dressing room was on the left-hand side. Uh, sort of went in there, put their bags in, etc. And everybody came up and walked up the tunnel, walked up out onto the um, pitch. I don't think the crowd were allowed in by then. Mm. So the players were allowed to, you know, go on the pitch and have a look around. And um, that's when, you know, you're thinking, gee, I mean, what at Wembley, you know. And uh, I realised how some of the younger players, you, know, you have to have a little sit with them and just settle them down. Because mm. uh, people like the international lads have played there before, you know, for our countries. But some of the younger players never... I mean, imagine that David Peach for Gillingham. He never dreamt he'd play in the cup final. No. Um, players like that. Uh, and that's what we did. And the dressing rooms were extra big. <laughs> uh, big bathrooms next to it. And uh, everything was Wembley. So mm. you just had to try and act normal. Um, no need to tell them too much about Man United, we'd already done that in the training. Uh, and in those days, when it was getting near to, you walked out earlier than you would at a normal game, because there was a presentation mm-hmm. beforehand. Um, and there was a man from the FA, his job was to lead the teams out. Yeah. He would be down, when you got there, he would shake hands, introduce himself if you need anything, and then he'd take you in your dressing room, throw your words, bottles of water were, everything was set out, whatever. The staff had already been there earlier, as they did it every away game, and laid out 
towels and things like that, you know, and the strips, of course, that's all hanging, uh, ready. Um, and then when it got the near walkout time, he banged on the door. Mm. So I said, wait, wait. And I heard him banging on the other door. And then he came, he banged on again, come on, come on, come on. And I said, wait. And I wanted Man United to go out first. And I wanted to make them wait. I was playing a bit of a nerve game with Tommy. And uh, I don't know how many times he banged on the door, but eventually we went out and he was shaking the fella because he, his job was to get us from there to the halfway line and his work was over. And he would get the blame if we were late, you know. So I was that. But anyway, we eventually strolled out and I had to go to the front. And Tommy was already there. Where the hell are you doing? Like, you know, one of them. So I thought, oh, we've won that. And uh, uh, sort of shook hands. And then he said, right, off we go. And um, referee linesman, the, the FA man. And then we walked out the crowd, of course. We, we, you could hear it as he came out the dressing room. It was like a bit of a mumble. And then it got louder and louder and louder. And it was just like an explosion. Mm. See the light at the top of the tunnel. Uh, the sun was shining, but like an explosion in the whole ground, 100,000 wolf. And we had to walk all the way down to the halfway line and um, lined up. And of course, on the day, the Queen was there. Yeah. Uh, but she didn't come down to meet the team. It was the Prince Philip, I think, as I remember. And um, he came around, shook hands, everybody had a little word with one or two, and... Um, I forget what he said to me, but, uh, you know, that was part of the day and national anthem. And then you got back to normal, you know, lining up and you had to get it into your players' heads. We told them beforehand exactly what was going to happen. They knew anyway. They'd seen games on television themselves, hadn't they? As kids and they knew what to expect. But to be part of it for the first time is most unusual. And then, um, the game started and, Goes for the first 20 minutes, they battered us. And Ian Turner, my goalkeeper who I brought from Grimsby, uh, he never dreamt he'd ever be at Wembley. He was an ordinary basic, down to earth lad, and he kept us in again. He had every part of his body, his backside, his knee, his ankles. If you see, he came out once, they were one on one, and he got out, and he ran out like a, a fullback. And, um. And he wasn't even wearing goalie gloves. That's right. Kept us alive, kept us in the game, and gradually as the game went on, uh, we settled down and, uh, you'd well, the result is still left. Tommy Cavner with advice. Uh, along the line, the experienced Ted Bates, who first joined Southampton, I think it was back in 1937. McCallion to Stokes is onside!
I've watched the game back relatively recently. It was actually a lot better game than I remember. Saints, as, uh, as you said, gave as good as they got and seemed to be heading for extra time. Um, and then the moment arrived on, on 83 minutes. And I'm sure you've seen the goal thousands of times over the years, Laurie. But uh, talk us through your memory of it from the sideline. Well, the thing you remember really is Jim McCallion with that bit of magic. And then little Bobby, bless him. The reason Bobby was different on the day, because with due respect to him, uh, he's no longer with us, sadly, but he wasn't the star man uh, beforehand. You, you had you, you stood between Peter Osgood, Mick Channing, legends, internationals, Jim McCallion behind the same. Um, and Bobby was like the worker, the grafter. He knew that, he didn't mind. And, um, I mean, I'm not a betting man, but I suppose if you'd put a bet on him scoring the winning goal, I think you'd have got better odds than the others. But then the good thing was Jim McCallion, um, if you see it, as I remember, he had a little look up before the ball got to him and he whipped it in and then Bobby did what most people wouldn't have done. He hit it first time. Mm. And I think that's what took the goalkeeper uh, by surprise and everybody else. Because most people would have wanted to make sure the two-touch first one to sort of cushion it and to put it in where he wanted it in his stride. But he didn't. He hit it first time and, um, and that beat the goalkeeper. And I think we couldn't believe it because on the bench, you see, at Wembley, you're not a yard off the touchline, or two yards even. You're way back. You're more or less like some of the crowd are further forward than you are. And we heard the roar, and I think none of us could believe, really, that the ball had gone in. Because there's big screens up there, wasn't there? And then we were all up there dancing around and... Um, not so much dancing, but we were up on our feet and looking forward and sort of applauding Bobby. And, and I then had to make sure that, and I looked, we had seven minutes left, I think. My thing then was to make sure they you know, settle down, get on with it, defend, whatever you do, you know, forwards as well. I mean, people like Ozzy and Mick, who weren't normally expected to get back and help out, um, I mean, Mick, Mick was a natural. He would, he would come back and give people a rollicker, like, you know, if he had to. Yeah. Um, Ozzy would sort of have a little break and maybe have a little rest up there. But <laughs> on the last seven minutes, uh, my job was to pull them together, work as a team and stop the opposition. Didn't we almost let in a goal straight from the kickoff? I think so, yes. I think it, uh, <laughs> we were, I mean, you can imagine why, I suppose. If there yeah. Was still, uh, with our crowd, imagine the noise from our lot. Uh, they couldn't believe it. And I think if the truth is known, most supporters uh, said, right, we're going to have a good day out of Wembley. And I don't think they expected to come back with a cup. And for them to get through the game, the seven minutes to go, winning 1-0, oh, I mean, imagine the noise, the excitement. And um, I then, as a manager, I, I had the same feeling, but then I had to settle down quicker than anybody and get back down to normal and say, whoa, whoa, come on, hey, you've got seven minutes left, or ten minutes or whatever, with a bit of injury time. Come on, you've got to uh, battle now, you've got to work as a team, and you've got to stop them getting a goal. And that's what happened. And I think you said before it was the, the longest seven minutes of your life. Um, the final whistle obviously eventually 
Blue and Saints had won their first FA Cup. Um, it's funny you say what you just did there because everyone was celebrating wildly. And I think we all remember from the pictures, you know, you calmly looked at Ted, gave him a hug. You then hugged Tommy Doherty in similar style, who obviously, as I mentioned, was a good friend of yours. But I, I suppose it was, you know, an, obviously an incredible accomplishment to win the Cup for you, for the players, for the board and for the fans. But at that particular moment, and I'm, I'm sure it's hard to try and remember so long ago, but did it almost feel impossible to try and comprehend what you'd actually achieved? At that minute, uh, no, I think that, see, before the game, most people thought we'd be two or three goals down yeah. early on. And the longer the game went, as a manager, I could think, hang on, we've got a chance here. Uh, you know, more of a chance than I thought possibly beforehand. But the way we played, and the way Man United hadn't played, or we hadn't let them play, made me realise the longer the game went on, at least we're going to get a replay. Mm. But then to get the goal, then I had to be the first one to settle down and get everybody else settled down. Um, and, but as you say, right from the kick-off, they went forward. And whether it was the internal saving or not, I don't know. But um, if they scored then, the heads would have gone down and we'd have probably lost. Mm. But uh, they didn't. And we hung on. And uh, when... The final whistle, I remember the, the ball had gone out for a goal kick, I think. And uh, Ian Turner had the ball in his hands anyway. And Clive Thomas, the referee, went towards him. And he, I think Ian Turner thought he was maybe going to get told off or something. And uh, I think Clive Thomas said, um, the game's over. And Ian started jumping around before anybody else knew. <laughs> Uh, and he blew the whistle straight away, of course, but, uh, uh, that, that's a lasting memory and Ian never, never forgot that either. But he would, he was terrific. I mean, when I looked at him, um, bearing in mind, I'd seen him as a young from Grimsby Town. I probably just needed a, an extra goalkeeper. Uh, but I had a lot of faith in him. Mm. And, uh, he, to win the cup, from his background, was fantastic. Here's what you had to say immediately after the game, speaking with Gerald Sinstat. Welcome back. Let's go straight across to the dressing room area to talk with uh, Gerald Sinstat, who's got some of the Southampton winners right with him. And there it is. That's what it's all about. Silver with blue and yellow ribbons. Southampton the winners. And the man who scored the goal that gave Southampton the cup, Bobby Stokes. Bobby, the happiest day of your career? Oh, it's got to be, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Day before. Oh, too much. I can't say right, yeah. <laughs> There was a moment earlier this season when you might have moved away from Southampton, wasn't oh. it? Yeah, Dana wrote to the local Pompey, yeah, but the move wasn't right, so I stayed with the boys. It really wasn't right, was it? Now what about the goal? If you watch over there, and you see it coming up. Now let's have it in your words when it when it uh, comes up. There it is. Now come on. Well, uh, it's a good ball from Jim McCallum. Right. What a great ball. Uh, it's just been start right for me. Oh! Uh, Go on, Ned. Is it in the moment it left my foot? Yeah. Right, so you see it again. Hold on. When you say it just bounced up right, I mean it really was a beauty, wasn't it? Yeah. Cool. Oh, that's not how you spell it. <laughs> Were you expecting to see your name up in lights like that today? Nah, nah. It's a fairy tale. Yeah, here he comes again. Yeah, brilliant ball from Jim. Great Jimmy ball. Lang. It just thinks he's right for me. Well, hey, he does really, you know. It's magic, magic, magic goal, man. It's great goal. Don't turn on your way. Oh, what a goal. Oh, yeah, great ball. Now, where's Jim McCallyog? Somewhere over there, Jim. What about that ball? Yes, well, uh, Lace was facing the wrong way. I think I put it just a little bit behind him, actually. 
No, uh, I just when I got laid back off and Mickey, then uh, I seen Bobby running and I just uh, played down. You've managed, in fact, to play quite a few through that have put them under pressure. Mike Shannon had got through on a number. Uh, yes, well, you know, this is what we were sort of playing to, really, up to Aussie back, and then Mickey and Bobby running through. Peter Osgood, you, you said that you were in the mood today. Did you enjoy it when you got out there? Well, I don't know. It was a bit fast, actually. Uh, I didn't get a lot of the ball, you know, because uh, we was, uh, as Jim said, knocking it over the top for Mick. Mick did great, as usual, for us, you know. And it worked uh, smashing for us. Mick Shannon, when did you think that you could actually win the cup? Well, I thought first half, Jim knocked a great ball for me, and Alec, well, I don't know, he just got a toe to it or something to it. I mean, I thought it was in then. But uh, that was always on for us, you know. It was just a matter of getting it right. And, uh, I mean, Christ, the, the lad didn't have hit it well. I mean, it just dropped right for him. And, I mean, he's, he's the best in the club at it. We've said it, we've been so saying long, it all so long, for so long. Yeah. And, I mean, well, what can you say? Oh, dear, oh, dear, it you to death. What about the Manchester performance? Were you disappointed by it? Well, they, they must—they were a bit edgy. I think you know, sort of young kids. You know, they, they seem to be a little bit nervous before the game. You know, you could sense it. After about ten minutes, you could feel it. Now, Laurie McMenny, come and say hello, Laurie. Congratulations! Hello, Tremendous Jerry. performance. Hello, thanks very much indeed. Now, when did you feel that you had the game in your pocket? When the ball hit the back of the net. <laughs> no, I—I um, I didn't think that Manchester United gave us many problems in the second half. In the first half, I was always worried. Uh, the only problem I had in my mind was if, if they got a free kick at a corner. Um, the, the free kick, which was flicked on and headed against the post, that was a very good corner and deserved better, really. But when that didn't go in, I, I turned to someone next to me and I said that I, I, I didn't, couldn't see them winning it then. Well, now, we can show you the goal again, and we'll have a look at it now from behind the goal. I wonder if you'd tell us how you see it from here. Well, Jimmy McCallion actually, I think, had a little look before he struck that ball. Bobby ran forward well. I wondered if he was offside. I didn't realise he hit it as early as this. Full marks for doing that because he knew where the goal was and he stuck it right in the corner. That is a much better goal than I thought it was. I thought Bobby had took it on one stride, you know, a bit of control and then hit it. But the lad hit it and it was going away from him and he struck it in the, in the opposite corner. That was a very good goal, good technique. Everybody saw this game as being yes. a matter of Manchester United coming well, at you. Yes. Now, what did you have in mind and what worked for you? Um, I think the trouble is, Gerald, that you've just said um, everybody had this in mind. You haven't seen much of us this year. And the, and the top press readers haven't either. And it's not a criticism, it's a, it's a fact, it's a fact of life, of life sure. that they've got to go and look elsewhere. And on paper, we looked as though we'd be second-raters and underdogs. And we honestly and sincerely worked very hard at proving that we were a good team. I've got a very good blend of people. If you can understand, I don't think that we've been good enough recently to get out of the second division, but uh, we're good enough, was, to, was perform. Best performance we're good enough to perform in the first. Now, we, we, anybody that has seen us regularly, the second grade of writers, will tell you that this is how we can play, and I thought it was a good game, but I'm, I'm possibly not in a position to... Have you played better play. than this this season? Yes, I thought we've had occasions like Sunderland would be 4-0, it was a very good game, and Bristol City, we played some tremendous stuff early in the season. We've had some excellent performances, but to play well here, I mean, is a bit special, and, and Mick Chan is just shouting, don't forget his testimonial match on Monday night, QPR, <laughs> who are champions at the moment versus the cup winners, can't be bad. I think you'll be queuing outside there now, aren't they? Well, it should be, because Mick Challen deserves everything he gets. Well, what about Europe? So does the team today. Well, Europe, yeah, we'll have to start expressing the Jory Henny. And for the board then, Laurie, who'd stuck by you, it was a very sweet moment for them. You've said before that you could see a few of them crying in and around the Queen while the players were lifting the cup. So for them standing by you, I, I remember you sort of reflecting on it to say that you stood there on the pitch looking at them and, and thought, you know, that's a job well done. I, I've given them something back after they gave me some trust. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the end of the game is the jumping up and down, is the dancing and everything. All of my staff were hugging each other, and I just saw we were shaking hands. 
I made a whole point of going to Tommy and Tommy Cavana, his trainer. And they were good. They, they shook hands and um, obviously big disappointment to them. And then they just quietly you know, drift off. They couldn't go back to the dressing rooms. I mean, now the dressing rooms are just under the Royal Box, I suppose. Mm-hmm. They walk up there. In those days, they had to walk all the way along, along the, past the corner flag, um, down the tunnel. But they had to stand around for the presentations. And of course, once the players get settled in the, the summon, the FA man appears again. His job was to get the, um, the losing team up first. Yeah. Which is related. Before all that sort of happened, I, I turned and I looked up at the box and the Queen was in the middle with the FA people beside her. And then our directors all along one side of her and the other, and the Man United along the front of the other, row of the other side of her. And um, one or two of my oldie directors, well, all oldie worldy, most of them, uh, little tears sort of wiping off her cheeks. And, and I looked at them and I thought, well, you stood by me. That's Thanks very much. Uh, and I think they deserved it as much as anybody, having the faith in me. And um, uh, that was the best day of everybody's life and, and, and theirs as well, I suppose. But um, the other thing that, of course, I got out of it was that um, as the players went up, Tommy's went up first, and then my lot went up. Uh, I'm stood with Tommy, and I'm thinking, hang on, why aren't you and me going up? Mm. Uh, and then three years later, when we got to Wembley again, League Cup final, at the end of the game, I'm stood with Brian Clough. Yeah. You know, that famous, for many, many reasons, type of manager, wonderful, successful and uh, him and me were big friends and we did the same we stood we watched the teams going up he said come on then I said what he said up we go <laughs> you're kidding aren't you he said follow me <laughs> and um, up we went and uh, his team had won 3-2 it was a good one we won the first half they won the second my team had been up won along got their medals waved to the crowd come down his team did the same and all the people in the box were then turned to the right, looking at his team running around with the cup. So as we went up, the crowd could see us, but the people in the box didn't until we walked along. The people were looking a bit surprised and shocked, and we got to the near the centre, the FA man, and he's given us a dirty look. And um, and then the man in the middle who'd been presenting the cup, I think he was a, from... FIFA, he was a European type of fella, probably didn't know who the hell we were, Cluffy and me, and he turned, a bit of a surprise, and he's looking at the FA people, and the other FA man is scrambling around, he'd been the man on his other side, who was passing the medals on to give to the players, and he's shuffling around under the desk, under the counter a bit, and he came over two little boxes, and he handed them to the UEFA man, and he nodded and smiled, and Cluffy said, uh, he put his hand out, put his hand in the box in his hand and Cluffy said well done today young man you've done a bloody good job well done and, and he couldn't understand the word he was saying there <laughs> I scouted away at him and I got my little box off and I said thank you very much we walked along down and went out under the pitch and I, said, well, I was laughing the crowd were cheering away and patting us on the back as we went down under the pitch and we were down on the pitch and uh I uh, opened the box. I said, have a look, Cluffy, go on. And we looked in, there were two empty boxes. 
Dear, dear. And then, yeah, I kept that done then. Uh, I realised I was one of the founder members of the LMA, the league managers, and I brought it up with them and I said, we've got to, we've got to change this. And, um, because of that, the FA agreed. And since then, maybe it's that year, the year after, but since I started it, the managers go up as well now. Obviously, life would never be the same for you after that, Laurie, particularly with so much media interest, etc. Um, after you and the team had had a well-earned night out at Talk of the Town in London, you headed back down the M3 on the Sunday morning with the FA Cup on parade at the front of the coach. Um, having driven back into Southampton, and I know you visited the old four plant on the way to share the moment with their on-shift workers, you got onto an open-top bus and paraded around the city on the way to the Guildhall to meet the mayor and celebrate on the balcony and those sort of things. Um, I think you've said this before, but it must have felt like every single Setonian was out to greet you because whatever you see of the, the pictures these days, I mean, incredible scenes and I'm sure for you, memories. Well, it, it's apparently it's the biggest turnout of Southampton people ever. The council had agreed with the club after we got to the final that we'd lose a draw. We would have an open-top bus go round and they designed the route and it was going to take 45 minutes and it took four and a half hours <laughs> and that tells you everything the yeah. bus couldn't move as quickly or crowds um, it was unbelievable and I mean we, we'd had a late night I'd arranged talk of the town win lose a draw wives girlfriends meet up with the players and um had a terrific night there, you can imagine. Um, and then next morning, everybody worn out, knackered, got on the bus. Um, not the wives and that, it was just the team bus. And making my way back down. And um, uh, the, the cup was in the bus, not in the boot. We put it in the front. Yeah. I was in the front seat with the trainers. And we could see the box next to the driver. And um, it was locked up. And we hadn't even got out to London. We're coming along by, you know, tricking them, those little bridges over the top by the rugby ground. And there was people right across the bridge waiting for us mm. to go under and uh, waving and chanting. And I, I, that's when it struck me. Hang on a minute. This isn't just Southampton. It's everybody, you know. And I, I, I said to try to get the cup out. And we had the cup on one knee. Uh, every time we went under a bridge, somebody was there. And when we turned off, I nearly forgot, but I promised Mr. Kelly at Ford that we'd go in there on the way home. Even when lose a draw, he'd said to me, will you come in? Because I'll lose the ship, because they'll all go down for the open top bus. So I, I nearly forgot. I said, oh, turn left, turn left, and the bus turned in. We went to the Ford factory. He uh, rang a bell. All the staff came out, all cheering and everything. Uh, I'd opened the bus door, standing there waving, the players were waving out the window, and I said, yeah, I got the cup, mm-hmm. and I threw it up in the air, and they caught it and they passed it round. Yeah. And some of them had their faces were black with work, and they could see the tears, teardrops coming down. Yeah. And then we got back in the bus, we went down a different way than Portswood, <laughs> and we missed a bit of the motorway out, and Apparently, there's still people waiting there for us to go back. <laughs> still there now. Yeah. Um, and we got down to the Dell where the cars were waiting. Everybody wanted to get in the car and go home and go to bed. <laughs> but no, we had to put the stuff in the cars and then get on the open-top bus and start off 
and four and a half hours later, got back to the Dell. Some of the scenes, I mean, if you look at the pictures, the players were spread around on the top, and I was at the back, I think, with Mick and Ozzy, and I mean, my son Sean is in there, you can see the top of his head. Uh, I'd got him on the bus. Oh, I can't remember where and when, must have been up in London. And um, well, there was a uh, Aussie, I think, said, hey, look up there. And we looked up, we're coming along one of the long streets, bows at either on the pavement, and had people had shown out their windows. And there was a couple of ladies up at the window, and one of them uh, lifted that jumper up as we went back. Ozzy <laughs> uh, and Mick quite enjoyed that. And, uh, <laughs> after the lady um, bashing things, we were coming along and there was a shout from the other side. Everybody had to get to the other side of the bus because a, a, a working man's club had said, if and when the bus comes by, uh, we'll all get out. And the whole club was standing up there. The one fella, he must have said, if they win that blooming cup, I'll strip off. We're coming along and uh, everybody shouted, look at him. And he was stood there, not a stitch on, <laughs> and with his hands up in the air, and um, uh, he's got cheers all around. <laughs> the Echo actually put his picture in, but they added a little rosette <laughs> to <a> certain parts. <laughs> very long, but it was enough to cover. <laughs> and um, things like that were happening all the time, but they, you know, it was just unbelievable the way everybody reacted and being on the the balcony at the town of the Gills Hall, seeing the crowd there. I mean, Mike Osman, who you probably heard of, mm-hmm. he can see where he was as a young lad. He was on the top of a lamp, sitting on a lamppost mm-hmm. outside the Guild Hall, and people, you know, crowding around just to get near and cheering everybody on. It was fantastic. And, and then in what turned out to be a, a scheduling masterstroke, Laurie, obviously Mick Shannon's testimonial was on the Monday evening at the Dow, wasn't it? And, uh, it was obviously packed out, I think, so much so that the game never got finished, I think, because the, the pitch got invaded. But, I mean, that that must have been a, a great way to sort of end the weekend, you know, almost sort of a, a perfect celebration. Yeah, Mega deserved a testimonial better than anybody, really. And uh, the perfect time was to have it, have it on the Monday after Wembley. We know, win, lose, a draw. But winning, I mean, imagine. Uh, I don't know how many we could get in the Dell then, but you, you could have got twice as many. And they were crowded outside, there were, it was like going into Wembley again, but um, people were climbing over the walls, and uh, it was incredible. And the start of it all was that Ford, Stan Kelly, had said he would um, present a car to anybody that scored a goal, a winning goal, you know. And I don't know what, if it was just a goal or man of the match or whatever, but um, and of course there was a car, brand new car from Ford on the side of the pitch, and who was going to get it? Bobby Stokes, bless him. And, uh, yeah. The crowd, the, the team loved it, and it was all done like half an hour before kickoff, because they had to be taken off for the game. And um, we all came out, and everybody was cheering, seeing the team for the first time, and we're all gathered round. And uh, Stan presented a little speech, and he presented the keys to Bobby, and the only little problem was Bobby couldn't drive. <laughs> I had a car and he never driven, he never passed the test. <laughs> so after all that, and one of the hottest summers on record, focus was back on uh, securing promotion. The likes of Alan Ball, Ted McDougall, 
Chris Nicholl and Phil Bowyer would obviously join Saints the following season. Um, Borley, of course, a particular hero to all of us for his exploits on the pitch and then later as a Saints manager. Focusing on Alan Ball, the player, a World Cup winner as he was by then, Laurie, um, you know, he was obviously someone that brought so much to your side uh, on and off the pitch. Alan well, Ball, he was a wonderful gentleman type. Total respect from everybody in football. Um, he's a little bit of a rascal, I mean, in his own days. Uh, in the dressing room, was as important to me as he was on the pitch. Mm. Because every player, even the other internationals, uh, idolised him and remembered what he'd achieved in his career and in his life. And I knew his dad. His dad was a character. Um, he managed sort of Halifax when I was in the lower divisions. And we went way, way back. And he was a right character. But Alan did it on the pitch as well. His legs had gone. He, I mean, we used to talk about that. Uh, it was the end of his career, but he inspired everybody else, and his passing was terrific, and he, he loved winning, and he, he he didn't go out as if uh, to wave to the crowd and they remember me. None of that. He went out as if it was his first game, you know, mm. and he, he just loved playing football. That was his life. Perfect. Thankfully, Saints did get promoted at the end of the 77-78 season, finishing in second place one point behind Bolton. You'd then sign players like Ivan Golak, Chris Nichol, Charlie George, but Mick Channon left for Manchester City. We finished 14th the first season back in 78-79. Also reached the League Cup final, as you mentioned earlier on. Um, finished 8th the following season, which saw Phil Boyer finish as the leading scorer, scoring 23 times. But um, the highlight of that 79-80 season came on the 11th of February 1980, when the football world was stunned by you announcing at the Potter's Heron that Saints had signed Kevin Keegan. Can you tell us about the the lead-up to signing Kevin, as it had apparently taken you many months, phone calls, meetings in London, and apparently some German light fittings? I think it was in the article about Kevin. He was a legend because he'd been European Player of the Year twice, and uh, so he was always mentioned in the British press as well. And um, I think I, I either read or I got the impression... He was maybe ready to move, change clubs, type of thing. And uh, I thought, aye, aye, well, if he wants to change, he wants to leave Hamburg, why doesn't he come back to England, type of thing. And uh, I didn't have a number for him. I didn't have a number. I didn't know him. Never met him. Uh, but you see, football's like a family. He'd have heard of me and I'd have heard of him. And probably, not because I'd won the cup or anything, but because I managed Grimsby. Because he was from down the road, Scunthorpe area, and yeah. you would remember me from those days, probably. And since then, obviously, you would have seen uh, our things when we did win the Cup or in, in the paper, etc. Um, and I, I remember ringing Liverpool, Tony Peter Robinson, rather, the secretary, the lovely, lovely man, top man, him and Ken Fryer at Arsenal were the two top secretaries in football in those days. And I had just a bit of a chat with him, and I said, hey, by the way, I said, um, I see Kevin Keegan might be moving. Is he coming back to you, do you think? And he went, no, he won't be. I went, oh, good. Because you see, the reason <laughs> I did that is because sometimes, even now, when you sell a player, you can put a, a little clause in. You, if he wants to move away from the club you're selling him to, you've got first choice. Yeah. Uh, and they, they, he didn't obviously have that, so I cut my hands at that. Um how I got the number, whether he gave me the number, I had to be careful because 
whoever I got it off made her thought, I didn't tell the press, you see. But anyway, I, I got a number and I rang and um, it, it was in a, an occasion, the house I'm sitting in here now was being uh, built. We, we were moving and um, I think we'd already moved. Yeah, no, we'd been living in it, that's right, since 1979 we came in here. And um, the fellow that helped design it and everything, He's a good bloke, and he said he wanted to get something to go on the wall, all the way down the, where the staircase is. And he had this idea, and I said, what's the problem? He said, well, it's um, it's a good thing, I think it'll look right, but you can't get them in England. I said, well, where do you get them? He said, I've got to get it in Germany. I said, oh, whereabouts? He said, Hamburg. I said, oh, please. And uh, give me the details. And I eventually got the Kagan's number, I rang him up, I said, Lord, you want me to be, oh yeah, how are you doing? And they the chat, I said, hey, I said, um, I don't know if you do me a favour, but I said, and I told him the story, I said, is there any chance if we order it, any chance, uh, you order it, you can bring it back and I can meet you when you come back to play for England? Eh, not a problem, not a problem. So, uh, I left it at that, and then, I think I rang him again, and he said, yeah, yeah, he was going to get it, and, uh, uh, just, that gave me a, a way of talking to women about football and that in general. Um, and then at some stage I said, yeah, I, I was really aware that you think maybe moving club, uh, Real Madrid, uh, Barcelona maybe. So I said, you've got to be careful, you know, you've got a little baby, haven't you? And you'll need people to protect you and all this sort of thing. And <laughs> I left it, you know, dropping the phone and leaving it like that. And then eventually I said, hey, if you are going to move, what about coming back here? I said, well, come to us. I said, you know, Alan Ball, Mick Shannon, pals of yours and all that. And I left it at that. And that was a couple of days before I was due to meet him in London. He was coming back to play for England. I took with me the chairman from down here, guy Ascombe mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, I, I, he was the only one I told. I hadn't told the board or anything like that. I probably told the chairman and, and guy Ascombe, but nobody else, that there was a possibility, a whole 100 to 1 chance. And then we met up, I had a cup of tea together, and then uh, I said, look, I brought a guy with me, he's the chairman here, and I'm hoping that he'd tell you more about our club and why it would be lovely if you were coming home to England, and if you ever thought about coming. He said, yes, I will. Have you got a contract? And I, I was shocked. I know we had thought about bringing a contract. <laughs> and guy asked him, typical accountant, said, I've got one. He opened his briefcase and brought out a blank contract and Kevin said, have you got a pen? And he signed it. I said, bloody hell, Kevin, we hadn't even talked about wages, salary, nothing like that. He said, well, I've got something to tell you. I said, what? He said, I forgot your light. <laughs> the light, I said, you know, and, uh, and then we put it in. He went back to his room. We carried on to Wembley. Askham and me were sat in the Royal Box at Wembley. I'm watching England play and I'm looking at him on the pitch. England captain, I think he was. 100,000 in. And I'm sitting there thinking, he's going to play for me. <laughs> and that's how it started. And uh, eventually we agreed not to bring it out yet. And I uh, said, so what about your agent? Harry Swales, fellow with a big moustache, remember? Well, he won't, but uh, basically the long moustache and down to his chin. Unusual. At either side. And... Um, he said, well, it's your day, you tell him. He was really agreed that he was going to meet up at the Potter's Heron. He didn't tell anybody in his club. And uh, I told Harry Swales, 
And I said, Harry, do do me a favour. Go to Southampton Airport, and I gave him the time, and I got I told the press, one of my mates, Alec Montgomery, number one at the Sun in those days, I said, tell all your mates to turn up. If they don't, they'll regret it. <laughs> you wouldn't, I wouldn't tell anybody what it was about. It was a Monday morning, I think, and they used to have Mondays off, because all the football was on a Saturday then. Mm, yeah. And um, they were all grumbling and mumbling, and, but he got them there. I then told the chairman, and uh, he came along with Guy Ascom. His players came Monday off, and I got all the Channon in Bowley. I said, you two, Potter's Heron, 11 o'clock. They didn't know what for, but I said, I want you there. And um, they came, top table. They were sat there side of me, with the chairman and the directors. We were the top table. And at the given time, there was a tap on the door, the door opened. And the lady walked in with a baby in her arms, followed by Kevin Keegan. The press gasped, stood up, and started to applaud. And I sat back and I thought, job done. And Bowley was running. And uh, afterwards, Mick Shannon said he knew. Whether he did it, I don't know. But <laughs> Kevin might have told them, but uh, <laughs> never mind, that was it. And uh, the rest is history. Yeah, so he made his debut in a 2-0 home win against Manchester City at the Dell on August the 16th, 1980, and would go on to score 42 goals in 80 matches for Saints. There were two great seasons of football on the pitch. Um, he'd eventually leave Saints in the summer of 82, heading to Newcastle. But as Kevin left, the likes of Peter Shilton would arrive from Knott's Forest. So you were still continuing to attract real top-level players. Um 83-84, Saints would have their best ever Football League finish, which still stands today. Second place, three points behind eventual champions Liverpool. And this side contained the likes of Mick Mills, Dave Armstrong, Steve Williams, Frank Worthington, Nick Holmes, Danny Wallace, Steve Moran and Shilton, of course. And then there was that awful FA Cup semi-final loss to Everton, which still brings me out in a cold sweat now, <laughs> thinking about it. How special was that? 83-84 season, Laurie, and how do you reflect on it now? Hey, Kevin Keegan, before we move on quickly, the uh, the reason Kevin left really was because he came to see me one-on-one in the house here, and he did, he said, I'm not too happy. I mean, he, he didn't think the club was ambitious enough then. Yeah. He thought that you know we should be striving to do better and get other players in and that, and I think and I, we had a bit of a set to the pair of us, and um, I didn't agree with him, but he wasn't happy, and then uh, Kevin was like that, 100% either way, and the opportunity came, and off he went. But still very friendly, even to these days. Um, but, of course, what year was that? 81, 82 or something? And, yeah. But uh, if, if I'd really been naughty, I could have rung him up two years later and said, I told you, because he thought we weren't ambitious, yet we finished three points behind Liverpool. Yeah. So I knew the club was going forward in the right way. And if he'd stayed, he'd have been in that team and we might have got the other three points. Almost certainly. So that was that. And then, of course, uh, Kevin moved on in uh, his career. Uh, as I say, we kept in touch still. And um, he's right just around here to speak around the other night. And um, here we were. But we moved forward. And as I say, by then, I had a reputation for bringing players in. And we brought Peter Shilton in. He was a good signing. Uh, he was ready for the move, and um, see, when you're in football, as long as I was, you get to hear things and know things off the field, and 
and I found out all about them. And I used to look at the, the backgrounds before I sent anybody if I could. And he was ready to move and he came at the right time and for him and us. Uh, but that semi-final was a big, big, big disappointment. Because I think we'd all assumed we were going to get there again and we didn't. But uh, anyway, that's life and uh, things could have gone better, but it could have gone worse as well. Yeah. I thought it'd be good to try and get this on, on record. I know you spoke about it in your Daily Echo uh, column recently, Laurie, but one man who obviously supported you a lot between 1979 and 1985 was, of course, John Mortimer, your assistant manager. Sadly, John passed away recently. Um, you know, What kind of man was he and how valuable was his experience in helping you achieve the success that you did at Saints? Well, to be fair, John wasn't there you know, when we won the Cup. Yep. Um, most people in the game knew him, but he... He'd been around a bit. He was a nice, very, very, very nice man. He wasn't, say, what you call manager type, but he went abroad before most people from England had, and he had a terrific, and still has a, he's a legend in places like Benfica. Um, because over there, you see, the coaches, and that's what he was good at. He would coach and not have to do the managerial bits between Monday to Friday like we had. Yeah. He would just be coaching, and um, for some reason, he rang me, I think, and... Uh, he had a, there was a problem at home, uh, family-wise. He needed to get home. I was able to appoint staff. The board stood by me, and I, I gave him a job. Mm. I just added him to the, the staff. I mean, I did the coaching with the first team, and I, when John came in, he didn't do a lot of coaching with us. He took over scouting. Mm. That was his main job. I let him start like a scouting staff type of thing around the country. You know, we had people in different areas. And John was he was out at different games all the time. He was more at other clubs than he was with us at times. When he was with Ted, I think he did more in the field because Ted was of an age then, yeah. and he did most of his work. But I mean, I was on the field with my staff more. I mean, I started at three at the back and two fullbacks going forward. You know, people forget that. Um, John was a lovely, lovely man, a great man to have around. Very popular with the players. Wasn't a pusher. Just quietly got on, and he. It was more or less the scouting which he organised for me, and um, and it was the sadness. 1985 then, after 12 years with Saints, you eventually moved on and went to work with Graham Taylor and the England set-up and things like that. Um, Guy Askham then approached you about coming back to work for Saints, and uh, you took on a, a director role, not director of football, I know you've mentioned that before, but we obviously remember a, a certain Rupert Lowe then coming along and uh, you know decided to change quite a lot of things around the club, not least the the general environment, which would eventually mean you moving on again in 1997 and taking on the Northern Ireland work. But, you know, having spent so many years with the, the club and understanding maybe what made it tick and the culture and that sort of thing, Laurie, how hard was it trying to work with Rupert Lowe and eventually having to leave? You know, I've been with England and everything else, and Guy Askham was a neighbour of mine, and, you know, I always used to see a lot of them. And when I was left England, and he, he invited me to be part of the board, um, and all that that you said was dead right. And then, I can't remember why he was brought in to the club, but um, he was an unbelievable pillock of a fella, really. He, he thought that he knew everything and um, hadn't got a clue. Uh, he wasn't popular at all with anybody. And, um, it still isn't. Uh, <laughs> we are part of a, a setup that he was part of, and, uh, and I think it was proved right at the end, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. And thankfully then, just final question then, Laurie, in, in March 2020, after quite a few years where the club hadn't necessarily treated you with the level of respect that was deserved, Martin Simmons and the team 
finally made you a very well-deserved club ambassador and, you know, allows you to continue your love affair with Saints even now. Um, you know, when you look back at the whole picture then, Laurie, involved with Saints for nearly 50 years now, over 600 games managed with us, host of talented players signed and developed, an FA Cup win, a League Cup runners-up, a promotion, a first division second place, the freedom of the city, a club ambassador, and maybe most importantly, you know, seen as a true footballing hero by several generations of Saints fans. How do you sum up your overall journey with our incredible club? Well, it's quite impressed by that. <laughs> uh, when you're a manager, it's, it's a job and you get on with it and uh, you hope to win. You've got to win more than you lose, obviously, to keep the job. But Salam and me took together, me and my family, because they stood by me when other clubs wouldn't have done. And um, as I said at Wembley, I looked at the board and I think they deserved it more than the, most clubs directors would have done, put it that way. Mm. And uh, you could tell it was a different sort of club by then. George Reader, bless them, and Sir George Merrick and all of them, they set the standard. He stood by Ted Bates all those years. Ted was fantastic. He was great for the club. And I learned a lot from them. And the longer you're with it, I mean, 50 years, you just said, kind of believe that. But um, it's always had a very, very soft spot with me and my family. And... Um, you know, to be called an ambassador now, I suppose, is finishes it off nicely. I've never asked for anything over the last days or more. There was never any sign that, you know, the club was going to be like it used to be, with all these and looking after people, etc. But I think it's changing. Mm. And the fact that they've made what Franny and Matt, two kids, are signed, and they became legends, and myself as ambassadors, I think it's a good sign that people like Martin Simons and Toby Steele, they're the only two I've met when they asked me to be a, an ambassador. And I, I can just sense that that warm feeling that uh, that's coming back again, which is important off the field. And, and I think the manager, all right, we're having a bad time in the last couple of weeks, but I think that he must sense that as well. He's been there two years. He's signed a four-year extension. He's been around. And he must feel probably the same as I do. And I've seen him mention the production of young players. He's realised that over the years, maybe it didn't go as far back as me, but due respect to Ted, it was me that started all that, bringing youngsters in. And over the years, the youngins I brought in, like the two I mentioned, Franny and Matt and Alan Shearer and loads of people like that, mm. I did it because we needed them to go with the old heads. And that's what yeah. happened uh, if he's doing the same again, that means I think that he's he's here to stay longer than most of the foreign fellas coming in now. So I think there's a warm feeling about the setup that is good. Well, I think there's quite a few of us wondering where the uh, Laurie McMenemy statue is, but maybe that'll come one day. But uh, Laurie, on behalf of Glenn and myself and all the Total Saints podcast listeners, thank you so much for joining us on this 150th episode. Thank you for everything you've done and continue to do for our club. And thank you for all those wonderful moments, not least the 1st of May 1976 that we'll all treasure forever. So thank you very much for your time, Laurie. Yes, thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure. I'm getting frowns of my wife. Well, <laughs> I'm <not> surprised. <laughs> uh, you can tell that you're passionate and you're real club supporters. And uh, without you, there wouldn't be a club. And you're the sort that deserve the same type they got 40 years ago. 45, is it now? And I hope you get it this year.
away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.